Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 29 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Sarah Chase has lived and worked in Afghanistan for eight years and now serves as an advisor to the NATO command in Afghanistan. She went to Afghanistan in 2001 as a correspondent for National Public Radio to cover the fall of the Taliban. In 2002, at the urging of President Karzai's uncle, she made the decision to leave journalism and to dedicate her time to the rebuilding of Afghanistan. She served in Kandahar as the field director of Afghans for Civil Society, a nonprofit group founded by President Karzai's brother. Since 2004, she has focused on the country's economic development, launching a cooperative in Kandahar to expand the market for licit local agricultural products grown by Afghan farmers. Ms. Chase graduated from Harvard University in 1984 with a degree in history. She served in the Peace Corps in Morocco and then returned to Harvard to earn a master's degree in history and Middle Eastern studies. She has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and in 2006, her book, The Punishment of Virtue Inside Afghanistan After the Taliban, was released. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Sarah Chase. Thank you all very much. Thank you, sir. Um, I'd just like to underline one aspect of the trajectory that was so glowingly described. Um, but just to let you know that, that the perspective that I'm speaking to you from is really that of ordinary Afghans. I've been living, you know, what we now, what I now call outside the wire, that is to say in, you know, downtown Kandahar in a regular compound. Um, uh, my cooperative is men and women. We're 15 people. Um, uh, ten women and five men. The men are from mostly from the villages around Kandahar. There are three readers and writers in the 15 people. And so what I'm going to be saying to you isn't coming to you from any uh, Western perspective. It's, it's what I've been absorbing from the people that I've been living and working amongst. I speak Pashto um, serviceably, not brilliantly, but everything that we do is in, is in Pashto. And so what I'd really like to do first is a little bit of myth-busting, because in the um, debate that, that has been finally um, growing in the United States about Afghanistan and what we're doing there, I've been hearing some um, motifs that, that don't actually correspond to what I've experienced. And the first thing is that Afghans hate foreigners, and there's this reflexive um, rejection and distrust of, of anything international. And um, Alexander, we often go all the way back to Alexander and say, you know, well, they were the ones who defeated Alexander and forced him to go, you know, his army to turn back. Well, it turns out that in Kandahar, um, he was welcomed by a tribe that he came to call the Benefactors and spent a wonderful winter in Kandahar and decided to build one of his cities there, uh, which is, uh, in fact, Kandahar itself is believed one of the theories about the name is that it comes from Iskander, which is the local name, uh, the local way that Alexander was pronounced. And so um, even that hardy myth is not quite accurate. And what I can tell you is that I entered the city in December of 2001, days after the departure of the Taliban. And I can't quite say that people were throwing off their burqas and getting online to have their beard shaved and things like that. It was Ramadan to begin with, which is a sober time of year. And it's a sober city. It's a, it is a conservative, um, cautious uh, city. But what I can say is that there was unanimous um, enthusiasm 
about the arrival of the international community, the, you know, the, the, the commitment and investment of the international community in Afghanistan. And the reason was that Afghans understood they were in a 30-year nightmare. They had been in a 30-year nightmare. And it's like having a vehicle that's a great vehicle, but it's stuck in a very bad rut. And you know that you need a wrecker to pull you up out of the rut. And for Afghans, it really felt like finally the international community in you know, its um, power and diversity was going to pay attention, you know. And um, uh, one of my stories on NPR was I, I, I broke fast one evening with a group of drug dealers, of opium dealers. And in fact, I did, you know, the NPR thing. I had my microphone and I had them weighing out some opium and I got the sound and, you know, all that stuff. And, but we got into a really lively conversation about education. And they were saying, you know, um, that they couldn't wait to see a school system reopened in Kandahar. And I was giving them some tough love and saying, you know, the United States of America is not going to drop a fully formed educational system out of its helicopters. That's, that's not going to happen. So what are you guys going to do? And they started saying, wow, you, you know, you're right. May, you know, maybe I could, if I volunteered the roof of my house, maybe we could have a school on the roof of my house, one of them was saying. And that was the spirit of those days. And so the notion that Afghanistan is reflexively or culturally um, opposed to interaction with internationals, I'm here to tell you, because I've lived there for eight years, that that's not the case. Um, I think what's interesting from a, from a historian's background, I have a tendency to look at, you know, bibliographies and things like that and footnotes. And I noticed that a lot of the documents that talk about how um, you know, xenophobic Afghans are, the source material comes from two periods when the West was most interested in Afghanistan, which are, of course, when the West was involved, meaning the 1980s, when Afghanistan was under um, occupation by the Soviet Union, and the 19th century, when the British Empire was trying to um, at least take it over by proxy. Well, those are periods when international involvement tends to be negative to the, to the country being involved with. And so it's not a big surprise that during those periods the rejection of international involvement might, might have been higher. But it's because of a reason. I mean, it's because of a, of a circumstance, not a kind of cultural necessity. The second myth that one hears often is, oh, you know, Afghanistan's never been governed, can't be governed, it's really a tribal society, and what are we doing trying to impose Jeffersonian democracy on a country that just doesn't want it? Afghanistan was founded as a country in 1747, which has us beat by a couple of years, and it has been governed, you know, with more and less direct power exercised by the center from then until now. But again, I would, I would submit that um, what the degree of central control over Minneapolis in the late 19th century might also have been somewhat ten tenuous. You know, um, we have to be careful not to, not to compare apples and oranges. What I would say is that the tribal and ethnic identities are strong. Again, if we think, um, think in terms of parallels rather than in terms of contrasts, I think there are some real parallels. We, I, I experience the tribal identity in Afghanistan as, as a kind of dual citizenship and something that we're also familiar with. I'm a citizen of the state of Massachusetts. I'm kind of proud of it. I always have been, you know, and I'm a little bit, you know, um, um, you know chauvinistic and things like that. And, and yet that doesn't conflict in my mind with being an American. Well, same with Afghans. If you ask any Afghan that I've met anyway, are you a Pashtun or are you an Afghan? The, the question doesn't even make sense to them any more than it would make sense to ask me, well, are you American or do you have green eyes? They, they're not in conflict with each other. On the other hand, it does serve as a useful survival strategy or survival mechanism when the country does come under attack. So another cliche is that Afghans only unite when they're under attack. Another way of looking at it is that Afghans dissolve their nation state when they come under attack because they have this other structure that allows them to fight back. So the Soviets invade Afghanistan and what do they do? They take over the government. Well, okay, we'll just dissolve our government and we will fall back on our tribal structures as a means of 
resistance, of, of organizing ourselves to resist. And so because of that value as a survival mechanism, it's not something they give up easily. And you'll find that tribal structures come to the fore when either the country is under attack or when the central government is weak or repudiated, which unfortunately is the, is the case today. Um, I'd like to make another distinction, which is one between tribal elders and warlords. Um, that's, again, a, a two words that get confused. Tribal elders, it's a consensus-based um, decision-making process. It's the traditional mode of self-government, which is democratic. It's just a different style of democracy because it's, it's a style where you debate things in an open forum and kind of beat yourselves into some sort of consensus that emerges from the open forum and then, and, and then that's the decision rather than a sort of secret ballot, one person, one vote process. It's a, it's a procedural difference. The problem is, and this was driven home to me when I had a meeting with about 40 tribal elders from the, uh, sorry, the province of Wardak, which is just south of Kabul. And this was to discuss one of the programs that has been put forward as a notion for kind of community-based defense. And I asked these guys what they thought of it, and they actually didn't like the idea at all. Because what they told me was, we, we've been suffering for years from uncontrolled armed groups. What we want a government. We don't want more uncontrolled armed power. And one of them stood up and said, we tribal elders are a powerful force for good so long as you don't give us weapons. When you arm us, we become warlords. And I found that a really profound, that's why I love tribal elders, is they, they, they get very candid and they're very self-aware, you know. And so what happened during the Soviet invasion of the 1980s was, you know, as I said, you sort of fell back on these tribal structures and they became armed because this was the structure for fighting against the Soviet invasion. And so you had Stinger missiles, you had hundreds of thousands of dollars, you had these things that caused certain commanders to kind of escape the collective control of the traditional tribal structures. They became warlords. And, and to use a, a metaphor, it's almost like metastasis to size cancer. They became too strong for the body politic to be able to bring back into control. And, and so, l extending the metaphor, the arrival of the Taliban in the early 19, in 1994 can be seen in a way as, you know, you, you, you've got cancer and you go to the doctor and he says, the only way out of this, the only way to cut this cancer out of the body politic is to go and have a horrible operation. And people sort of said, well, okay, you know, if that's what we have to do. Now, now particularly in the South, um, that was pretty much the decision. Anything rather than the kind of um, chaotic violence that they had been suffering between the Soviet withdrawal in 1989 and, you know, then, 1994. And so what happened was after 9-11, um, the United States was under a lot of pressure to move and move quickly to respond to that attack. And, you know, the decision was to move militarily in Afghanistan, and we sort of needed proxies. A and to extend the metaphor further, what we did was take a syringe, suck up the cancer cells, those same warlords that the Taliban had driven out. We sucked them up into a syringe and re-injected them into the body politic and put them in positions of power, in particular in the provinces. And that's part of what my book tells the story of one of those. Uh, one example in Kandahar where, in fact, President Karzai didn't want a certain individual to be governor, but we kind of rammed him down, our down his throat because he had been our proxy in the, in the fighting part in, in November and December, November of uh, 2001. Um, and so, unfortunately, um, we created a situation where we re-imported criminals and installed them in positions of power and then armed them and, um, for example, put uniforms, our uniforms on their militias and things like that before the formation of the Afghan National Army and pretty much gave them a blank check. We really weren't that interested in how they governed their people because what we were interested in was chasing remnants of Al-Qaeda and, and Taliban and stuff like that, this famous counter-terrorism uh, counter um, um, uh, strategy 
we really didn't look at how these governing individuals treated their, treated their population. So that's the next myth that I'd like to bust, is that corruption is endemic in Afghan society. What's really interesting is that I've only ever heard that from Westerners. I haven't heard a single Afghan tell me, you know what, this level of corruption, it's really normal. What I've heard is people absolutely screaming and for almost eight solid years about the level of corruption that has been, um, been allowed to flourish in this country. And to the point where one of my cooperative members is a police officer, a former police officer, and he is so angry at the way police treats you know, people, for example, the kind of um, shaking them down for bribes, pushing them around, um, kind of humiliating them when they extract bribes from them and things like that. He actually said to me one day in anger, um, you know what, if I see somebody laying an improvised bomb on a road and I see a police vehicle coming, I am not going to say a word. Now, I don't think that's actually literally true, but it does give you a sense of the level of rage that people feel. And so, you know, it shows you how corruption can actually fuel what we're calling an insurgency. So a couple of other points about this. It's different from patronage. You know, patronage, it's true that tribal elders, um, you know, uh, did owe, they played a distributive and still play a distributive role. But that's different when you sort of have to bring home the bacon and then pass it out among the poorest people in your community and things like that. You have to feed people when they come over. You have to give people money. Um, it's different when you're shipping millions of dollars in cash out to Dubai, for example, or you're building you know, massive mansions and things like that. That's not patronage. And tips, you know, it's true that t tipping people is a cult. We do it. It's a cultural phenomenon. And it's certainly perfectly acceptable in Afghanistan if a government official really bends over backwards to help you out within the law, but is just being very helpful uh, and, and, and you know, sh giving you public service to give him a few dollars. That, that might be ill seen here if you go to the post office and the clerk helps you wrap your parcel and things like that. We probably wouldn't pay him a, a few extra dollars. But in Afghanistan, you would. It's different when you have to pay. We, we brought in some solar equipment on an hour and a half drive, our cooperative. We had to pay $150 worth of just these petty tips to six or seven different police check posts along the way. So let's not confuse what we're talking about. The second point is that it's systematic. And um, I recently, gave, the other day, I gave a talk at Dartmouth, and I had a blackboard, which I don't have here, so I can't show it to you. But basically what we're looking at is a structured, a government that is functioning almost like a criminal enterprise, in that the money is going upwards like it would in a mafia because the lower officials, like the provincial governors and things like that, they are paying for their offices. They're paying for their jobs, so they send the money upwards toward the center, toward the ministries or the, or the president's office. And what comes down, so in a normal government, you know, you tax the people, the money goes to the top, and then the money goes downwards in the form of budgetary allocations, salaries for officials, and things like that. This, as I say, it's the reverse. The money is going upwards. No one's being taxed. Interestingly, the Taliban tax, but the government doesn't. Um, and what goes downwards is permission to extract all these resources, um, protection. If, you know, anyone, if the international community puts pressure on a particularly corrupt official, well, he gets moved. He doesn't get fired or put in jail. He just gets moved to another place. So there's, there's protection. And then there's punishment for those officials who don't, you know, who, who try to blow whistles or who are against the system. And this system is capturing a lot, if not most, of the development money. And just a little thin trickle gets down to the people who are a little bit outraged because they know how much money is coming into the system and they see how little they're getting. And the reason they don't revolt against this is because we are sort of serving as the enforcement arm of this system. 
um, unwittingly, because we're saying, oh my gosh, this is a sovereign country, we have to support the, the government of Afghanistan. And so we're not, as I say, we're, we're still not, or haven't been until very recently, asking the kinds of questions about how these officials are actually governing, because we've been loath to interfere. And that's very ironic to Afghans, because they say, well, you put these guys here, so how come you stopped interfering now? You know. Um, and the other point that I'd like to make is that the amount of money that we're talking about is significant. We're not talking, I mean, yes, Afghanistan is a poor country, but, and it doesn't have oil and things like that, but um, you're talking, let's take customs. Um, it's, you know, you can think of Afghanistan as two doors in a wall that separates three very important parts of the world. The Central Asian Plateau, the, sorry, Central Asia, the Iranian Plateau, and the Indian subcontinent. These are really important, you know, centers of population and, and industry. And you've got a wall, which is the Hindu Kush, and Afghanistan owns the two doors um, in the wall. So that's a natural resource right there, is your geographic um, location. So customs at one of the five major customs gates in the country bring in for the government of Afghanistan $10.2 million a month. The governor of that province has his own toll booth. He brings in 60 cents on the dollar. So that means he's getting, you know, 12 to 13 million dollars a month in his pocket. Now, the bad news is that this is happening. The good news is the kind of anti-corruption language that you're starting to hear emanating from, partly I think from US popular outrage at the fraud that was per perpetrated during the, the, during the election, and emanating from you know, US officials, it, if acted upon, it makes the whole prospect of being in Afghanistan much more viable because the Afghan government can actually float a whole lot more of its budget than it's currently doing. Because the other thing it has is natural resources that are not oil. For example, it seeded a major, the largest untapped copper reserve in the world, I think. Don't quote me on that. But a very important co copper reserve to China, to a Chinese company. Well, I saw an article in the Washington Post yesterday about the kickback that went to the Minister of Mines, something like $38 million. Well, what that suggests, because I know how this kind of thing goes, is that the copper deposit was probably worth about three or four billion dollars. It was probably given to the Chinese company for something like, and again, I'm, I'm guessing here, but something like one billion dollars. Um, and the kickbacks, and I'm sure that one wasn't the only one. So what that means is that if that process can be stopped, if there can be some oversight over the natural resource concessions, you can actually float the Afghan national budget. You can pay for the expansion in Afghan security forces that, that we're talking about um, accelerating. And the Afghan population is less outraged at what appears to them to be international protection for a racket, you know, because they consider these resources to be theirs. They consider this to be the common property of the citizens of Afghanistan, and they would like to see it invested in the future of their country and their children and things like that. So there's a lot of potential there if approached in the right way. Um, the last myth, and then what, how are we doing? Then, oh boy, because I didn't really get to re-Talibanization, but I'll, I'll talk to the last myth and um, re-Talibanization in the same breath, which is to say, as you may have guessed, this is not fundamentally an ideological issue. This is not extremist Islam, and if I had time, I would tell you how one of the reasons you got civil war in the early 1990s is because the Afghans didn't want to be ruled by an extremist Islamist faction. This is the most practical population that I have ever encountered in my life because they're survivors, and, and, you just, and they're vaccinated from ideology because they've been through two or three ideological revolutions and they've had it with ideology. So what I would say is that the, the Taliban, and we can discuss this maybe a bit more in, in, in questions, but I watched the Taliban being reconstituted across the border in Pakistan. This is not an indigenous movement. And I saw it being reinserted. What happened was the population became more and more receptive to that reinsertion as they got more and more upset with the things that I was just describing to you. So in a sense, you can see it as an insurrection 
Again, not against foreigners intrinsically, but against this whole system that we are seen as having, you know, help to support. And that means that it's reversible, although we don't have a lot of time, because eight years is a long time to kind of suffer under this sort of system. Um, but what I've been seeing is a combination of, um, of that sort of rejection of, of, of the alternative that, that we, as it were, have been offering, but also a lot of coercion and intimidation. Um, and again, if anyone's interested, I can go into some, some anecdotes about the process of how they move into an area, because I've been seeing it pretty closely. Um, and how also sometimes they, they, they can be clever and distract our attention. We have the tendency to say, oh, there's a lot of Taliban in an area where there's a lot of attacks on us, except that's not their, their target. Their real target is the Afghan population. And so I've actually watched them deliberately distract our attention to a certain area with attacks on us while they were kind of under the radar filtering into a district or an area that was more um, strategic for them. Um, and so in conclusion, what I would say, I would make um, two points. There's this um, you know, dichotomy in international relations, the students up there can correct me, but um, because I haven't read any of this stuff, but I hear about you know, idealism versus realism. And supposedly, you know, idealism doesn't work, and, and it's right, realism is when you really understand how the world works. Well, one can say that it was realism that, that caused us to just take any, any guys to be our proxies against the Taliban back in 2001. It doesn't work. It's actually bad policy realism. When you cut corners with ethics, you lose in the end. And the second point, you know, more specific, well, I'll, I'll, I'll just leave it there. When you cut corners with human decency and with, you know, ethics in your policy, it, it's, it's going to be self-sabotaging in the end. Thank you very much, and I think we have a conversation coming. Thank you very Thank you, Sarah Chase. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, broadcast live from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, Senior Minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is Special Advisor to the NATO Command in Afghanistan, Sarah Chase. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to invite you to participate in our winter-spring 2010 season beginning Thursday, February 25th, when Cory Booker, the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, will address the forum. Further information on our next season will be available in mid-December at westminstertownhallforum.org. And now, Sarah Chase, if you would return to the pulpit, I'll present the questions from our audience. How does the local Afghanis feel about Osama bin Laden? Do you have any sense of that? Actually, um very, a lot of distance. Um, they used to tell me that everything went really bad, really awry under the Taliban when Al-Qaeda kind of joined in. And they resented the, um, um, what they saw as the arrogance of, of um, who they called the Arabs, you know. Um, or they would sometimes call them the Arab Taliban. Um, at the same time, it's a little bit self-contradictory because um, they were impressed by how the Arabs fought against the Americans uh, in, in November and December of 2001. And so ironically, some of the graves of some of the Al-Qaeda folks who had been down there have become pil pilgrimage sites because they, you know, they said these people died saying God is great and things like that, and so people will go for healing and things like that. But I have never experienced any positive, um, um, you know, um, discussion, a anything positive said about Osama bin Laden, I've not experienced that among Afghans. China's economic development aid to Afghanistan exceeds our own. This week, Japan pledged a large amount to Afghanistan, but no military aid. Can anything be done to open the eyes of the public and our leaders to appreciate the value of wielding soft power rather than military power? Long after we have left Afghanistan, China and Japan will have earned far more influence in the region than the U.S. I contest the China 
line. I have not seen any development aid um, um, or development projects run by China, and that's one of the concerns about this copper mine, is that they're extracting copper, but one doesn't see a lot of assistance or, or development projects going alongside. Um, I think there is a lot of development aid, U.S. development aid, going into Afghanistan, and, and the issue for me isn't so much quantity as quality. It's, it's the system that I was describing to you that's really the problem. With the amount of money that we, we're already sending, more could be done. So, so again, for me, the, the question is how do you get it where it needs to go? How do you break up, um, for example, USAID is a, is a United States Agency for International Development, is a huge monster. It's been, um, its personnel have been cut back over the years. What that means is you don't have enough personnel to administer small projects. So what they end up doing is subcontracting. They'll give $19 million to a private company, which then administers that money. The private company is there to make a profit. I mean, that's what it's there for. So what I would say is we need a major recalibration in the United States of our national resources toward our civilian efforts overseas. Several questions about the role of women in Afghanistan and the Afghans' perspective on the women's role. And what about recent changes in the laws regarding women's rights? Any chance about uh, improving the education for Afghan girls, the changes in women's rights? Yeah, that's a real tough one because I'm living in the most conservative part of the country. And so I've chosen to address women's rights issues in general um, very, very quietly. I don't address it directly and I address it by providing employment for a number of women because I just think it has, it, it, this is something that is, this is cultural. Um, and you're actually likely to produce backlash if you take it on head on. In particular, as um, the situation becomes more and more physically dangerous, you know, a, a, a wartime situation is not a period usually when, I mean, with some exceptions, uh, because I think we've had times of advance in women's rights when the males were out of the economy and so women could fill economic roles. But when war is happening in your city, that's not when, you know, rights are, you know, tend to be expanded. And so that's something that I think really is going to take time and take a little bit of security. But uh, as for girls' education, I am telling you, the enthusiasm for getting girls educated in the Afghan South was so overwhelming back in, in 2001. And the retraction, the sort of retreat in that really is due to the deteriorating security situation. Are there any things that American women can do to help bring Afghan women uh, into uh, progress and in, uh, improve medical, educational, economic advancement? Again, I really think the security situation has to be dealt with, and, 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 and as you, I think, understood from what I said earlier, to do that, you have to fix governance. Governance, improvements in governance will bring improvements in security, and that will that you bring the whole country forward, women with it, and then at some point women are in a situation where they can, where they can take off on their own. That being said, the presence of women in parliament has been an absolute eye-opener to Afghans because they have been exposed to, you know, parliamentary debates in which women get up and say stuff that often is a lot more courageous than what many of the male members of par parliament say. So I've got some pretty traditional Pashtuns who were telling me, you know, by God, I'm going to vote for a woman um, in the presidential election. Of course, there wasn't a, a female candidate that was, you know, who was in a position to, um, to be electable. So that didn't end up happening. But, you know, at least they said it. That's new. Can you tell us something about the process where the, whereby the Taliban reinsert themselves into a district or a, a community? Yeah, it's um, a process uh, that begins by intimidation. There was a district immediately north of Kandahar city that was critical because um, it's where the anti-Soviet um, uh, resistance fighters drove the Soviets out of the Afghan south from. And, World War II analogy, it's sort of like the Norman Bocage. It's where you really don't want to have to fight because it's a pomegranate forest. The places, you know, Kandahar sort of looks like, you know, the moon with some goats on it, basically. And, um, uh, 
you know, and then there are these, um, there's this ridge of rocks and you go over to the north of town and you go over that ridge and you're in a pomegranate forest and it's people's orchards and, they, and pomegranate trees are kind of bush-like and spindly and things like that. And you've got walls, it's walled orchards and you've got irrigation ditches and you've got a meandering river and stuff like that. So the Taliban are really interested in that district. And the tribal elder um, who held sway in that district died in October of 2007. And I knew that that district was going to come under attack. And sure enough, within two weeks, the Taliban attacked it frontally. And then ISAF, NATO, responded within a couple of days and drove them out and was very, we were very proud of ourselves. You know, and then, but what I came to realize is that that Taliban attack was not designed to capture the district. It was designed to have a psychological effect on the residents. In other words, to say, we can come here. We came. They, they actually went to the home of this tribal elder and dug it up looking for arms caches. So then they spent the winter intimidating people. And what they did was take tribal elders. And they would kidnap them, and they would kill one, and they would beat a couple others. And then they would send them back saying, you know, tell your people uh, not to work with the government and not to work with the foreigners. And then the next summer, the same thing happened. In June of 2008, another attack. This time it took ISAF four days to, to drive them out. And similarly, then the, the intimidation campaign started. And this time it was with even lower member, members of the social stratum. In other words, if I'm a pomegranate farmer, farmer and my neighbor is a, um, works for the government and he gets killed, I can sort of say, well, he works for the government. So he's different from me. But when it's your neighborhood baker who sold bread to the police check post, you know, that gets to be a lot more like you, and you get much more intimidated. The, you know, you don't have to kill a lot of people to intimidate those people who identify with them. And then there are a couple of other phases. There's, there, there, so what I look at, I don't look so much at attacks. I look at how the Taliban are interacting with the population. And the first thing they do is try to control freedom of movement. So they'll set up check posts where they frisk people. And at first, it will be a moving check post. Then it will become, as they become more entrenched in the area, it becomes a fixed check post, where every time you go by, they will frisk you and search you. And what they're looking for is documents that link you to the international community or the government, and they take your phone. And they confiscate your phone if it has a can Actually, they're confiscating all the phones, because they want control of communications. And so in one district that one of my cooperative members lives in, they have a telephone tree where they've confiscated phones, they break them, and they hang them from the tree. So you've got like 250 phones hanging from this tree. And so, so that's for your movement. Then there's money, and they'll start out, you know, just asking for donations. They'll come to church, and they'll um, say, you know, uh, next week we're going to come and collect some donations. And then they come, and they kind of stand at the door, so there's sort of no way you can get around it. The next phase is they'll actually assess people on an individual basis based on their knowledge of how wealthy they, they are. And the next phase is a straight 10% income tax, revenue tax. And they do it, they actually have very good intelligence. So another friend of mine tried to kind of underestimate his grape harvest, and they said, uh-uh, we know how many you know, kilos you took in. And he said, well, whatever you say. But they were right, and he had lied. And that also is a way of affecting people's psychology. Oh my God, they know everything about me. Judicial function is another thing they start to do. And this again is, I don't want to sound like a Taliban apologist. I'm trying to make you understand how they do gain a foothold. So I'm not saying, you know, that they're, you know, but what I do want to say is that Taliban justice is not just whacking off people's hands and things like that. The cases that they are hearing are mostly civil cases, and a majority are land disputes. And what they're able to land disputes, and what they're able to do is um, actually enforce the rights of people who aren't plugged into this government structure or who don't have a lot of money to bribe the official judges, because the official judges don't decide cases without a bribe. But the Taliban now have enough coercion power that they can actually stand up for disenfranchised people. They don't always do it. There are also people who take advantage of connections with them to try to, you know. Um, so judicial function, and they have something called the commission, which rides circuit. 
and takes these sort of traditional style collective decisions and also serves as an ombudsman committee, meaning if you have a problem with a Taliban commander, you can bring complaints to this commission. And they've fired some of their commanders based on local people's complaints. So this is something to pay real attention to. This is government function. It's not quite like um, Hezbollah in Lebanon. Um, they're not building hospitals and schools and stuff like that, but, but it's worth paying attention to. Sorry for being so long on that one. All right, a, a follow-up question from one of the high school students here. Since the Taliban is such a major force in Afghanistan, are they centrally controlled? Do they have some kind of command and control center, or are they a dispersed group? And how do they communicate across the, the expanse of Afghanistan? That's a really good question, and one that has um, caused a lot of people to, to, you know, there's a lot of debate about that. But my own personal belief is that they are rather more centrally controlled than one might think. It is, there are diverse groups um, that are allies of convenience. Um, but a couple of examples, uh, a friend of mine actually spent a month, an Afghan friend of mine spent a month with Taliban to provinces away from us um, because he had had $60,000 stolen. He was a money, um, you know, he would trans, you know, physically transfer money. And he had money stolen and the police in that district didn't have any power because it belonged to the Taliban. He said, I need my money back so I'm going to ask the Taliban to get, them, get it back. So he stayed with them for a month and one day idly they were going through a list of vehicles that they are tracking, that they are watching. And he suddenly found our vehicle on it. The color, the license plate number, the look of the guy who drives it most of the time, two provinces away. Um, and I've got a couple other stories like that. And so what I would say, particularly in the South, there is quite a degree of command and control, and it is exercised out of Quetta, Pakistan, which is where the Taliban originally, originally were kind of put together back in 1994. And so that is an issue that complicates our relationship with Pakistan, because while Pakistan has started, the Pakistani military in particular, has started taking a different stance toward some groups of Taliban, in particular the ones that are operating in Pakistan, they're still at best um, turning a blind eye to and at worst facilitating the activities of Taliban that are operating in Afghanistan. Follow-up question on that one from another student. What is Pakistan's role in Afghanistan, and particularly in the eyes of the local Afghanis? Okay. Afghans are very intolerant of Pakistan, and to some extent may, you know, they may have a tendency to blame all of their ills on Pakistan. But um, I do think that it's fair to say that, that, that um, um, the government of Pakistan, so I don't want to say the Pakistani people, but the government of Pakistan, and in particular the Pakistani military, which has had until very recently a preponderant role in the government, um, has seen Afghanistan as its kind of backyard in a way. And there's been this concept called strategic depth because Pakistan feels a little squeezed with India, you know, on one side, which it considers to be a hereditary enemy, and the Soviet Union in the old days on the other side. And so it felt like it needed a little bit of breathing room. And it started to treat Afghanistan as its breathing room. And its policy for decades has been to um, try to control Afghanistan in whole or in part, directly or by proxy. And the best they did was with the Taliban regime, which controlled about 90% of the country and was about 90% or 80% obedient to Pakistan. It wasn't perfectly obedient, but pretty, pretty close. And so the notion that after 9-11, the Pakistani military would suddenly change its behavior based on a visit you know, by the American Secretary of State, I think was a little bit naive on our part. And so what I've been seeing over the last eight years has been a kind of double game where um, the Pakistani military has been very helpful in, in a variety of ways, but in ways that tended to distract our attention from what it was doing to continue to pursue its objective of controlling Afghanistan in whole or in part, <laughs> uh, directly or by proxy. And, and just to take you in a direction that I don't think um, we were necessarily going, any thought of negotiating with the Taliban, meaning I don't mean winning over foot soldiers on a local level. I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to, 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 to set out to do based on the analysis that I, that I gave you before. But negotiating with Taliban leadership is necessarily going to involve some kind of, of, of land and power for peace. And that 
in effect gives the Pakistani military back what it had before, is control of Afghanistan through a proxy Taliban government. So I personally am very skeptical of a notion that you can get out of Afghanistan successfully via a negotiating uh, process with Taliban leadership because, because the Afghan population didn't want that. And because, as I said, I think that it, 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 would, be a, it would be basically ceding part of Afghanistan to Pakistan. We have, as you might imagine, a number of questions about uh, the advice you are offering uh, along the way here to the NATO command and others uh, on Afghanistan. Let me see if I can get some of these through to you in a way in which you might respond. I know there are limits on what you can say. How do you feel Karzai's re-election will affect our government's decisions on whether or not to, to uh, add or not add troops to Afghanistan? This is from a high school student. Okay, I can't quite answer that question the way it's posed, in particular because you know better than I do. You're in America, I'm over there. So I don't actually know what is impacting U.S. policymakers over here. Um, what I think, personally, is that the, and this emerges from what I've been saying to you, is that the governance issue is absolutely critical to how the Afghanistan um, problem is resolved or not. And so, um, again, in the, in the New York Times today, there was a, a story about Secretary Clinton you know, um, providing some pretty strict guidelines. I don't want to say some some pretty clear and concrete demands on the Karzai government, um, and and the notion of making our involvement conditional on um, how that government performs. And I think that makes a lot of sense because um, I don't see how you win a counterinsurgency when the people can't bear to live under their government, you know? I mean, it's just not, not a, um, it, it, it's not a situation, it's not a soluble situation. And yet, this is an area that is desperately important to us. I mean, the notion that the United States is not gonna remain involved in South Asia for the next several decades, I think is, is a, um, I, I just don't think that makes a lot of sense in my view of how, how the world works. And I also think that our, our, the way we think about Al-Qaeda needs to be expanded. The Al-Qaeda threat to the United States doesn't come from a particular base or safe haven that might be 100 miles on the Pakistani side of the border rather than the Afghan side of the border, so why do we have to care about Afghanistan? It's not that. This is a debate of ideas. We're involved in an argument with um, a nebulous and large world of extremist Islam, and we're involved in an argument for the hearts and minds of populations, not just in Afghanistan, but all over the world. But how Afghanistan comes out is gonna be a major factor in who wins that argument. So the idea that, oh well, Al-Qaeda isn't today sitting in Ghazni in Afghanistan, therefore we should reduce our presence there, doesn't make any sense at all to me. Um, because, because this is a global, um, it's a global argument with different places are going to be the stage that where we're, where, where, where populations are watching. Okay, how does it go? How, you know, okay, you're testing out your point of view over there in Afghanistan. You're testing out your point of view over there in Yemen, you know, stuff like that. And so I think, again, the issue of governance is central to this because it's how do people want to live in society. And if we can help the Afghans, um, build for themselves the type of government that they can be proud of, then we're going to, you know, that's going to be a major step in winning this argument. Given that response, I, I take it you would say that the USA simply walking away from Afghanistan would not be a, a good choice. That's what I would say, yes. <laughs> Are your remarks to the NATO command being taken seriously? One of our students wants to know. You know, here I am, Sally the soap maker, right? I mean, you know, Sally the soap maker meets NATO. It's, it's been an extraordinary experience for me because who would have thunk, um, you know, and I'm not easy. I, I, I'm not sure I would hire me, you know, I have to say. 
um, because I'm br relentlessly bringing into this headquarters the perspective of people that, that the headquarters actually doesn't have much access to because the headquarters is obliged to interact with government officials and stuff like that. The government officials, as well as the Taliban, are both trying to monopolize the, the narrative, right? They're trying to control the narrative. So, and, and, and so I strike a discordant tone, and, and literally, I am asked to continue doing that. So one day, um, you know, someone tells, you know, I thank someone for his tolerance, you know, for me, and he said, that's what you're paid for, Sarah. Keep throwing grenades. And I think that it is a mark of how much the US military has grown over the last eight years. And it's been very painful. We all see it on our streets every day, how painful it's been. And, and believe me, there isn't a commander on earth who likes to lose a soldier or likes to lose a staff sergeant or, you know. And, and this is, has, has, has been maybe not as dramatic a trauma as Vietnam was but the last eight years has been very painful and, and, and in some ways more so to the military than to the professional military than to the population which is different from Vietnam because there was the draft in Vietnam and so we were all exposed to it. But now it's really our professional military that's bearing the brunt of, of these wars and they are growing tremendously and it's, it's really the sort of voracious appetite for countervailing opinions is not something that I would have accused, you know, the U.S. military of some years ago. Do you personally feel safe in Afghanistan? Uh, let's, you know. Apparently um, not. <laughs> you know, and the problem is that it's not just you. I'm not just me anymore. I'm me and at least my 15 people, right? And they are pretty convinced that either they themselves or a member of their family will die in the next 24 to 48 hours. So what I'm trying to say is that it's also a level of psychological stress that, that is very, very difficult to cope with and is usually coped with by humor, um, which really helps. Um, I would say that, of course, I feel safer inside ISAF headquarters than I do living in Kandahar. ISAF is the NATO military command up in Kabul, which is where I've been living since March. But I go to Kandahar about once a month, and I still travel around and things like that. Um, but I am taking more and more precautions and I'm more and more worried about my people, about my cooperative members and my friends and things like that. What I would say is the way you stay, the way I have stayed safe, I think, is partly by, um, you know, being part of the society. Speaking the language, going to people's funerals, going to their weddings, um, hanging out with the traffic cops, you know, joking around with them and things like that. I mean, I, am, I feel like a member of Kandahar society. But it's also by a judicious use of, you know, mutually assured destruction, um, deterrence. So I actually think, ironically, that one of the reasons I am still alive is because I'm connected to the military. Because people assume that I will be avenged if something happens to me. So there's a kind of, you know, so sometimes I throw my weight around. I found that power um, it grows in this society in its, in its exercise. So even before I worked for NATO, um, I could go into the governor of Kandahar and kind of get into an argument with him and kind of push him, you know, funny argument, but, you know, push him around on behalf, for example, of the Manufacturers Union of Kandahar, who he was refusing to meet. And I would say, Mr. Governor, he'd say, I don't want to talk about it. And I'd say, Mr. Governor, you have to. It's your job. You've got to settle this, this land rights issue, you know, or something like that. And I think that he would let me, you know, do this because he sort of assumed that I had a predator, you know? 